James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. As we've already had occasion to notice a number of times, James addresses themes that are prominent in Old Testament wisdom literature. The literature you find supremely in Proverbs, but also in Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs, and in several of the Psalms that are clearly part of that uh, library of wisdom literature. But especially Proverbs. The most noticeably absent of those themes in James is that of sexual purity, a major theme in Proverbs, but a theme which makes no appearance in James. But quarreling, unkind speech, partiality, and so on are frequent themes in Proverbs, and they appear prominently in James as well. So does money, the love of it, the corrupting influence of it, and the attitude toward it that wise people ought to have and that foolish people so often have. So it's no surprise that James, being wisdom literature, takes up that subject, as he does in this next paragraph. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, neither here nor anywhere else in the Bible are the rich condemned for being rich. Great wealth can be of tremendous benefit to the kingdom of God. This morning we noticed that Mary's home was spacious, sufficient to hold a congregation of Christian people at prayer. She must have been well-to-do. Most Christian homes would not have been that large. You remember that the Lord Jesus was supported by the gifts of men and women who were better off than the run-of-the-mill followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some prominent biblical heroes, men of faith and examples of godliness, were wealthy men. Think of Abraham, David, and Job, who were, by the standards of their day, very wealthy men. The problem with wealth is that it poses powerful temptations, temptations that comparatively few wealthy people successfully resist. A false sense of security apart from God, an insatiable love of power, and delight in excessive luxury and self-indulgence, all of which conditions, as we know, corrupt the soul. Or, as another commentator put it, the sin of the rich is not wealth per se, but the way in which wealth is acquired, the way it is used, and the spirit it engenders in the heart. Again, James is building on the teaching of the Lord Jesus, which he does more than any other author in the New Testament. You remember that the Lord also spoke sometimes as if every wealthy person had gone astray in these typical ways. Woe to you rich, he said on one occasion, for you have received your consolation. That is, you've received all the consolation you're ever going to get. He also famously said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. 
He didn't on that occasion, as James doesn't here, hurry on to say that, of course, there were godly rich people and what he had just said did not apply to them. That sort of generalization, as you have learned, is true, typical of the Bible's style. The Bible being a book written by Semites, citizens of a particular culture, it shares a common feature of the Semitic mind, what one scholar calls absoluteness, a tendency to think in extremes without qualification, in black and white, without intervening shades of gray. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Clothing was a primary form of wealth in the ancient world. In a way, it is simply not today. And so it is often linked in ancient literature with silver and with gold. We would never think of it this way or use it for these purposes, but clothing could be used as a form of payment, was often given as gifts or handed down as an inheritance. Here the idea is that whatever these people suppose themselves to have gained will come finally to nothing. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Surely we're harking back here to the Lord's famous comment about not laying up treasures on earth, but rather treasures in heaven, because treasures on earth are vulnerable to being destroyed by rust and by moth. These people are hoarding their wealth rather than putting it to good use. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. As you may remember, the law of Moses made a point of expressly forbidding farmers from withholding the wages of their hired workers. In those days, most wealthy people would have been landowners, and most workers would have been paid in coin, a way in which they could then produce or or purchase the food that was needed for themselves and their families. As Yahweh warned the Israelite landholders, the poor may seem to have few friends and no one to stand up for them. Who is going to care if you hold their wages overnight or until the next week? But their cry goes up to God and he will see to it that justice is meted out to those who abuse their power. The phrase, the ears of the Lord of hosts, is taken directly from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 9, part of that famous description of the vineyard of the Lord. The Lord came to his vineyard looking for righteousness, but instead he heard only the outcry of the poor folk who were being oppressed by these wealthy landowners. The fact that he is the Lord of hosts reminds us that he's able to meet all of our needs without our resorting to ungodly behavior, and he's able to bring anyone to judgment who flaunts his will. You have lived on the earth in luxury 
and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now James turns to the self-indulgence that wealth makes possible and all too predictable. They live a life, in other words, without self-denial, which John Calvin, you remember, said was the principle, the bottom principle of the Christian life, the denial of self. But in doing so, they forget the issue of life. Remember what the Lord said to or about the rich man in his parable in Luke chapter 16. In your life, you enjoyed good things. But now the rich man is in hell and in torment. All of that pleasure is forgotten. While Lazarus, who suffered want and oppression during his life, is now utterly and forever free and happy in heaven. But what is the sense of that final sentence? He does not resist you. Is James simply saying you're too powerful for him? There's nothing he can do about it? I think it seems best to regard James as saying that the righteous man, like the Lord Jesus himself, did not resist the mistreatment that unjust and unrighteous people were meeting out to him. And in not resisting, they demonstrated that there are higher and purer motives than merely the hope of gain. And that the Christian's calling is to demonstrate those higher motives by refusing to fight back against the oppression of the wealthy as if we too cared only for money. So far, the Word of God. I thought I would begin tonight's sermon with a rapid survey of the Bible's wisdom on the subject of money. I count something in the neighborhood of 30 verses or sections of verses devoted to the subject of money in the book of Proverbs. And taking them all together, one finds a rich and multifaceted perspective on money and wealth. For example, the Bible knows shows no hesitation in admitting that you have to have money to live. There's no virtue in being poor in and of itself. It makes for a harder and more difficult life. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. That's 1420. That's one of those Proverbs of which there are a number in the book of Proverbs that describe the world as it is not necessarily as it ought to be. Scholars refer to them as phenomenological proverbs rather than didactic proverbs. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's 22.7. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it, which is to say that wealth is often God's gift to his people. Why would God give such a gift except that it is, in fact, a blessing when a human being receives it? The Bible is wonderfully earthy in its acknowledgement that it's better to have money than to live without it. As Agur puts it in Proverbs chapter 30, having money, 
among other things, is a defense against the temptation to steal. Money contributes as well to the enjoyment of life. One lives in a more comfortable home. He eats tastier food. He travels in greater comfort. He wears nicer clothes. And as Proverbs 13.22 reminds us, he can provide more for his children. This is all summed up in Proverbs 10.15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. But Proverbs also knows the limitations of money and wealth. It cannot satisfy spiritual needs, which obviously are so much more important than physical ones. This point is made in the better than Proverbs. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. A poor man is better than a liar. Better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways, and so on. Wealth is also fleeting. That's another of its limitations. You can't take it with you. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's 23.5. Also, the more money one has, the more vulnerable he or she becomes. You don't think of that, but it is certainly true. For example, poor people never have to worry about kidnappers. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. 13.8 What is more, the more money one has, the more likely that he or she will be surrounded by superficial friends. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. I was at Dave Warehouser's funeral years ago, and we were standing, Tim Scriven and I, standing in the back before the service, talking to the director of Dave's uh, family foundation, the Stewardship Foundation. And he was looking over the full company that had gathered for the funeral, and he said, you know, most of these people are here because they want something from the foundation. And Tim said, no, these people are here because they admired Dave Weyerhaeuser. They admired the integrity of his life. They admired his spirit of generosity. And just at that moment, a fellow came up, addressed the man we were standing with, and said, uh, you know, right after the service, I'd like to see you. I've got a, uh, I've got a, a suggestion to make for, for you, uh, an idea that I think you may want to support at the foundation. The rich have superficial friends. Proverbs is also aware of the temptations that are posed by money and the desire for money. Because the desire for money can be as tempting as the actual possession of it. We remember Paul's dictum that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it is Proverbs that tells us in what different ways that is so. It perverts love and justice. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Grasping people make poor spouses and parents, among other things. 
but most significantly, it tends to create a sense of security apart from God. This is, I think, the chief attraction of money, at least for unbelievers, even though they would never have put it to to themselves in that way. So Agur prays in chapter 38 through 9, Give me neither poverty nor riches, a prayer that Christiana says in the second part of Pilgrim's Progress is scarcely ever prayed by one in 10,000. Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? This is a chief reason, the chief reason, why it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than to fit through the eye, an elephant to fit, fit through the eye of a needle. You don't feel like you need God. Fourth Proverbs knows that there are very different ways of obtaining money and how one gains wealth can make all the difference. Making money can never be the goal of one's life as if wealth in and of itself is a worthy end. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. That's 22.16. You see, giving gifts to the rich is a way of ingratiating yourself with people that you think may be able to exert influence on your behalf. Rather, wealth should only come to a person as the result of God's blessing. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, 10.22. So the only safe way to become well-to-do or wealthy is to work hard, serve others, and enjoy God's blessing on your labors and your character. Otherwise, those who are greedy for unjust gain, it takes away the life of its possessors. That's 119. Wealth also should be the reward of the diligent, not the lazy. Remember Proverbs' famous contrast between the ant and the sluggard. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's chapter 6, 10, and 11. On the contrary, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 10.4. By the way, as an aside, the causes of poverty in the Bible are three. Tyranny, laziness, and the judgment of God. Poverty is never caused by a world that is insufficient to meet everyone's needs. We need to remember that sometimes when listening to doomsayers among our politicians and our environmental activists. Wealth ought never also to be acquired by miserliness, but only by liberality. Stinginess is contrary to the heart of God. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. That's 28.8. And then wealth ought not to be acquired by indulging appetites, but by curbing them. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. 21.17. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. That's 23, 20, and 21. 
Now, as you can readily appreciate, just listening to those various Proverbs, the view of money we find in the wisdom literature in the Bible is what we find everywhere else in the Word of God. From the Lord's seek first His kingdom and righteousness and all of these other things, food, clothing, shelter, will be added to you. To Paul's, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. From the Lord's parable of a man who planned to build bigger barns to amass still greater wealth, but failed to reckon with the fact that the length of his life was in the Lord's hands, to Paul's reminder that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. From the Lord's admonition to lay up our treasures in heaven and not on earth, to the example of the early church, which was exceedingly generous to the poor and invested lavishly in the progress of the gospel. From the Lord's admonition to use our money, to gain friends for ourselves, friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings, to the rich man's failure to befriend Lazarus, the beggar at his door, only to find himself in hell and Lazarus in heaven. From the compliments that Paul was often paying to the generous churches who supported his work and the poor in Jerusalem, to the terrible and sudden judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. From, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it, to you cannot serve both God and money. It's an interesting fact that Holy Scripture says there are two things in human life worth buying at any price. Truth and time, neither of which can actually be purchased with money. This is wisdom, of course. So the whole world knows it at a certain level. If we put the question this way, who's going to fail to answer this question, at least in public? Who do you imagine has the deepest satisfaction and the greatest joy in life? The man who pays for an expensive suite at a swank hotel and spends his evening trying to impress strange women with expensive cocktails in a half-lit lounge? Or the man in the room at Motel 6 who spends the evening watching the sunset while writing a love letter to his wife? We all say money can't buy happiness, but we're all sorely tempted to live and to think as if it can. These facts, the Washington State Lottery survives and thrives precisely because so many people really, down deep, are sure money can buy happiness. So sure that they're willing to surrender what money they have for the infinitesimally small chance of striking it rich. Now, in a way entirely typical of wisdom literature, James takes up here just one dimension of the large issue of our view of money. It has been argued that James couldn't be addressing Christians here because real Christians would not act this way, but experience proves the contrary to be so. It's not at all difficult to find Christians whose heads have been turned by wealth and who seem oblivious to the way in which the love of money has seduced them. But, of course, there is a great deal of this same teaching, not only in Proverbs, but in the Old Testament prophets who are full of denunciations of the rich, their mistreatment of the poor, their indulgence in luxury, denunciations that were addressed 
to the people of God. That teaching was preserved for the faithful in the Bible precisely because we need that warning. We who revere the word of God, we need to be made wary of money and its temptations. The argument that James gives us here, as you think about it, is a thoroughly theological argument. The reason the rich have cause to weep and howl, the reason their wealth has rusted and their garments are moth-eaten, at the moment their garments are not moth-eaten and their wealth has not rusted, is because the comfort, the power, the status, the pleasure that wealth bestows on a person in this world is so temporary. No one can doubt that the advantages of wealth are real. Being rich, even being well-to-do, even being comfortable, like all of us are to one degree or another, changes a person's life in many ways, and in ways that almost anyone would think were for the better. Imagine never having to pay, worry about paying your bills, or buying what you need, or even buying what you'd like. I heard recently say, uh, someone say, that most of what the average American evangelical prays for could be supplied by a moderately rich person. I hope that isn't true, but I fear it might be. Money makes life much easier, more pleasant in so many different ways. You and I know this because we find ourselves thinking all the time about what happy use we would make of more money if only we had it. But all of that pales in significance, indeed begins to look like a positive hindrance, impediment, when we reckon with reality, and in particular, this reality. Life is short, eternity is very long, and money is no help, none whatsoever, in getting to heaven. In fact, it increases the danger that one will not safely arrive there when our days in this world have come to their end, as they must and sooner than any of us thinks. What's the good of hoarding wealth if not only does it not help us get to heaven, but it offends the only one who, who can actually take us there? What good is gaining a few more dollars by paying our laborers late if God is offended by our doing so? What's the use of living in luxury if in the final analysis all it is going to do is to increase our bitterness and our sense of loss when it is all taken away, as someday it will be? The reality looming over a monetized view of life is that great reversal of fortune that awaits those who trust in present wealth instead of investing in their future in the kingdom of God. If there is no such reversal to come, then by all means, eat, drink, and be merry with your money, for tomorrow you will die. Try your best to avoid thinking about the onrushing end of your life. Use your money to distract you from the harsh reality of mortality. But if there is such a reversal, and the entire Christian religion is both the proclamation and the demonstration of that reversal, then a person who makes money his idol in this world is committing a grotesque and fatal mistake. He is, she is, in the language of biblical wisdom, the quintessential fool. And if such a reversal awaits, 
then the nature, the purpose, the value of money are profoundly transformed. Money becomes valuable as an instrument of serving God and others, more so than as a means of ensuring pleasure and comfort for ourselves. Money becomes God's gift, God's blessing, which we are duty-bound to be careful stewards of. I heard a Christian financial consultant say recently that one of the problems he encounters again and again and again in dealing with American Christians and Christian churches is that they have been allowed to think that God owns 10% of their stuff. When in fact, the Bible teaches that God owns 100% of our stuff. And not only are we obliged to be faithful stewards of His possessions, but we face an audit at the end of the day when every dime and nickel and penny will will have to be accounted for. How it was used, on what it was spent. If we really believe that, The accumulation of money, obviously, can never be for the Christian an end in itself. It can never be the purpose of rendering our lives, or can never be our purpose, to render our lives more comfortable, more full of pleasure. It must must rather be simply the happy effect of a life lived in faithfulness to the Lord and to His kingdom. God chooses to give us, greater amounts of money, and indeed, in whatever measure, He gives to all of us money and wealth. We're to regard it as a means further to honor and serve Him, the gospel, and our neighbor. The fact is, through thousands of years, wealthy Christians who have had a clear eye to these realities have paid the lion's share of the bill for everything from missionary work overseas to establishing Christian ministries and institutions here at home. Let me illustrate the difference that a Christian perspective, the perspective of faith, an eternal perspective makes when thinking about money and wealth. Some of you perhaps have visited the Queen Mary, one of the last of the great transatlantic ocean liners, before air travel replaced travel by ship. She's now a hotel and a museum in Long Beach, California. For three years after her maiden voyage, the Queen Mary was the grandest ocean liner in the world, carrying Hollywood celebrities like Bob Hope and Clark Gable, royalty like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, dignitaries like Winston Churchill, During this time, she spent or she set a new speed record between Britain and New York, which she then held for 14 years. Her passenger spaces were typically arranged in three classes. And interestingly, I hadn't known this, the largest class was first class, or cabin class, as it was called. In her spaces reserved for the wealthier passengers, she was luxurious beyond measure by the standards of the 1930s. For her paneling in both public rooms and state rooms, various woods from all over the British Empire were used. 
Her indoor pool took up the space of two decks. The ceiling of her large first-class dining room or grand salon was three stories above the floor. And, of course, the tables were laid with fine china, crystal, and sterling silver flatware. Works of art hung on the walls that had been commissioned by well-known artists of the day. It was an ostentatious display of the comfort and luxury wealthy people expected to enjoy as they traveled. In the lower classes, accommodations were much less fabulous, but more than acceptable by the standards of middle and lower class comfort in those days. At a maximum, the Queen Mary could carry something between 1,500 and 2,000 passengers in addition to her crew, which numbered about 1,000. But when World War II broke out, regular transatlantic passenger service was suspended, in part because of the danger posed by German U-boats and in part because the British Navy needed every ship. In the Queen Mary's case, she was stripped of her elaborate furnishings, which were stored away. The elegant wood paneling was either removed or covered. The furniture in the staterooms was removed. She was repainted in gray, and since she remained the fastest ship afloat, she gained the nickname the Gray Ghost. At the museum today, you're given a side-by-side view of the ship in peacetime and at war. On the peacetime side of the Grand Salon, you see the dining room as it was in the heyday of passenger ocean travel with the table set with a dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons, each one, the function of each one, the passengers in first class would immediately have understood. On the other side, the wartime side of the Grand Salon, you you see a single metal tray, somewhat worse for wear, that replaced some 15 plates and saucers necessary for the multi-course meal. On the one side, you see the luxurious stateroom that a first-class passenger would have enjoyed, large beds with beautiful bed covers, elegant wood furniture, artwork on the walls, lush carpets on the floor, and so on. On the other side, the same room is seen as it was during wartime. All the furniture removed. Now there are bunks. Not just one on top of the other. Bunks eight tiers high. That's how the Queen Mary could carry an entire division of American soldiers to Europe. On one crossing the ordinary 3,000 passengers and crew became 16,000 soldiers plus crew on their way to war. The ship was the product of wealth. It took a fortune to build her in the first place, and it was expensive to use her as a passenger. Her great engines produced record-breaking speed, speed that was intended in the first place to attract paying customers but speed that would continue to be her protection during her many wartime crossings of the Atlantic. But luxury gave way to utility when war began. The accoutrement of comfort gave way to the service of men 
and nations. It took a national emergency to justify the transformation, the stripping of that great ship from the symbol of luxury that it had been to an instrument of practical service only. Anything less then that great emergency would have not been enough to convince people that so much beauty and so much comfort and so much luxury had to be totally forgotten. That is a way, I think, of considering wealth as a Christian. You don't spend your money in the midst of a great war for the same things you spent it on in times of peace. We're in the midst of a great war for the souls of men, for our own souls, the souls of our children. We live in the midst of man's greatest emergency, the onrush of eternity toward multitudes who are utterly unprepared to face it, and the trials of Christians needing help on their way to the heavenly country. We used to be speaking about the importance of a simple lifestyle. That isn't the right word, the right phrase. Wartime lifestyle is the better, the better image. Make sure that we're using what the Lord has given us, however much or little, in a way appropriate to our circumstances in this world. So soon as we are to leave it for the next, so soon as we are to stand judgment for our stewardship. Remember, the love of money led Judas to betray the Lord. He wouldn't have done it except for the 30 pieces of silver. Judas had heard all of Jesus' sermons. He had witnessed most of his miracles. But 30 pieces of silver is 30 pieces of silver. That's how powerful the lure of money and the love of money can be. That's how completely it can dislodge a Christian from his or her convictions. And that's why we need to take care that we're thinking about money in a way that is obviously distinct and different. The way a Christian should think about money. Remember, the easier life makes it harder for us to remain fit for the battle that loyalty to Christ and spiritual safety, yours and others, require in this dying world of ours. Amen.